Hello again, and welcome to the Three Worlds Podcast, Series 4, Episode 6. I thought this time I would do a few short extracts from my book, Walking with the Tiger. Um, I'm kind of trying to record an audiobook version of it, because I really fancy having an audiobook, to be honest. It's pure ego. But I've got to say, I find it really difficult. My dyslexia kicks in and it's pretty easy to just sort of sit here and waffle into a microphone. But to actually read something off a page, I find really hard and it takes me an enormously long time. It sort of takes me about an hour to record a chapter and then about three or four or five hours to go back over the recording and edit and take out all the fluffs and put in new bits that I forgot. And, and there's 24 chapters or something like that in the in the book. So it, it's kind of like, a, you know, pretty much a month solid work. Um, so I'm not sure I'm ever going to do it, but I've done a little bit. And these are extracts from the little bits that I've done. So. I hope you enjoy it. The first one, I'm talking about the need for human teachers. So here's this extract. A shaman to be needs to have a human teacher. And when they have been diagnosed with shaman sickness, their training really starts. It is very rare to emerge fully and powerfully from shaman sickness without the intervention of a human shaman who heals and teaches the shaman to be. But it is not utterly impossible for someone to progress to some degree without a teacher. And traditional shamanic cultures have stories and often names for such shamans. In Nepalese shamanism, this is known as beauty futa, which means grown from the earth coming out from the earth or generated by the earth. It is the name for a self-created shaman, one gifted by the spirits. But even someone who is Bhutifruta really needs human teachers, as a Bhutifruta person may have potential, but that potential still needs to be brought out and developed. It also needs to be remembered that these self-arising shamans generally come from cultures where there is at least a basic understanding about shamanism in the general population and an animistic, live matter thinking culture. So these people already has a head start beyond the average Western person who grew up in cultured with dead matter thinking. For a person to arise as a complete shaman in the West is, I would say, impossible. But that does not mean that they can't have the potential and aptitude for shamanism. It just means, in our culture, without a teacher, a person is not likely to be able to develop very far by themselves. A human teacher is important because they pass on the knowledge of those who have gone before. This knowledge passed down the generations, forms itself into a traditional lineage, and some of these passed on pieces of sacred gold can be hundreds or even thousands of years old. Often, the shamans of the lineage will memorise the names of those who went before them. 
one of my shaman friends is the 27th generation of shamans in his family line. This is not to say a tradition cannot change over time, as of course they always do, because each generation of teachers will receive visionary teachings directly from the spirits, and they will add these to the body of knowledge held by the lineage. But these visionary teachings will have arisen because of the training the shaman had at the start of their path. And this initial training helps to ground the student, giving them real experiences which they can build upon as they become more experienced. I think one of the big problems that Western culture and the New Age industry faces is the entitled sense of egalitarianism and individualism that many people feel. Egalitarianism is a wonderful thing in itself, as all humans are truly precious and equal in worth. But there is a darker side to egalitarianism, which is seen in the rebellious and unhumble individualism many people feel about their spiritual visions. It is like saying, everyone can draw, which is perfectly true, and then adding, and my bad drawings are just as skillful as a drawing done by Leonardo da Vinci, which of course is not true at all. I have heard it said many times by Western people that they know better than traditional shamans because shamanism has evolved now and their modern urban understanding of the spirits is far superior to the understandings that those ancient lineages have. And so they simply don't need to have traditional teachers or pay attention to traditional ways of working. I have to admit, I find this utterly shocking. Western culture is sadly all too often spiritually immature and uneducated, and in many ways quite narcissistic. We often seek instant gratification without wanting to put in the hard work and think we have a right to whatever we want and that we know best. I say Western culture is narcissistic rather than individuals are narcissistic because a culture has a personality just as much as an individual does. And the personality varies between cultures. Just look at the difference between the national personalities of the USA and Britain, for example. Two nations separated by a common language. It is certainly true that many individuals are narcissistic, but that is because our wider culture is narcissistic itself, and therefore narcissism is normal. Because of this, we mostly don't notice it, and just as we don't notice the air that we breathe until the winds blow with a dangerous storm force, we often fail to recognise the narcissism inherent in our culture until it manifests in an extreme way within an individual. This cultural narcissism tends to make people think they are special and that they don't need to do the spade work, which all ancient sacred traditions have as foundations. It also means that people are very often unable to differentiate between real sacred experiences and fantasy, between spirits and subparts of their own personality. Our culture, sadly, has many people who think they are great chefs but who cannot tell the difference between cardamom and cloves or parsley and paprika. But I do recognise the problems many people face in meeting authentic teachings and receiving empowerments into authentic practices. 
Shamans are not to a penny in our culture, and travelling to meet them in their homelands is not always possible, so it can seem hard knowing where to begin sometimes. And yet that old, rather cliched advice of when the student is ready, a teacher will appear, is nonetheless true. I have a friend who met their traditionally trained shaman teacher by accident in a shop in a British city and went on to apprentice with them. If the spirits want us, they will find a way. I tend to think of a human teacher as a bit like a marriage arranger. They tell the student about the spirits and how to woo them and, even more importantly, how not to mess up on the first date and piss the spirits off. A human teacher also gives a package of energy to their student, helping them feel connected and linked to their sacred tradition. When a student works with a teacher, they ideally come away from a teaching feeling enthused and empowered, which helps to sustain them while they build up their own energy body. It is a little like the student is a small bird, learning to fly, and the teacher encourages and flies beneath them so as to support the student before their wing muscles are fully developed and strong enough for them to maintain their own flight. This added momentum is another reason why a human teacher is important. Once a stable and deep relationships with the spirits is established, a human teacher's role is less important as the spirits become a person's main teacher. But knowing experienced human practitioners provides a community, a sangha, which can offer support and make suggestions when there is a difficult case to deal with. Historically, this sangha would have been the other shamans in a lineage, but in the West, we don't really have lineages at the moment, although I hope they will develop in the future. And so, social media has often stepped into the gap, for good or ill. A human teacher in a lineage, especially if it is an old lineage, will have a store of ritual practice treasures that they can pass on to us. These will have been developed, honed and polished over the years, decades or centuries and found to be worth passing on. Remember that although shamanism proper is the time spent in trance, either being possessed by the spirit helpers or travelling in the spirit world with those helpers, it also includes a large side helping of ritual knowledge, methods of divination, ceremonies for healing and protection, the use of ritual objects, and a whole bunch of other things. Part of a human teacher's role is to pass this additional knowledge onto their student. It is possible to be given instruction about ceremonies, healing methods, ritual objects, and other things directly from our spirit helpers. In fact, it happens a lot. But a good human teacher is a shortcut on the path because of the accumulation of tried and tested teachings that they have at their fingertips. Why reinvent the wheel when there are perfectly good wheels to be passed on to us straight away and a whole tradition of wheelwrights and mechanics who know all about wheels and how to use and work with them? Human teachers also set up initiations and ritual empowerments into practices for the student too. The stages of learning and teachings that a student reaches and enters into through empowerments are held secret from them before the empowerment is taken. This is not to hold power over the student, but to safeguard both them and the teachings.
We have to develop shaman muscles, personal power to hold our space sometimes, and this happens gradually. So certain teachings and initiations are always held back until the student is ready and capable of taking them on. We could not be expected to run a marathon on the day after we first put on our running clothes. And it's the same in shamanism and tantra and any other magical tradition. Okay, so that was the first extract. And I'll put in another one now, which is talking about initiations, because it kind of follows on a bit from where I got to with the last one. So here's the next one. I have mentioned the term empowerment several times already, but not discussed the nature of them in any depth. So let's look at them a little closer. They are an important part of all sacred traditions, although, of course, the nature of an empowerment varies depending on what it is being given for and from which sacred tradition it is given from. A Christian baptism can be thought of as an empowerment, it is a rite of passage which introduces the person, be they adult or baby, into the community of practitioners. An empowerment can also be called a transmission or an initiation. And in essence, it is the giving of both practical teachings about something and also a package of energy or a ritual introduction to a spirit which enables the student to enter into a practice or a lineage. For example, the empowerment I received from a Native American Oglala medicine man into working with the sacred pipe was done by the medicine man smoking his own pipe and blowing smoke from it all over my pipe in order to bless and awaken it. It was a simply done affair and little in the way of specific teachings about the sacred pipe was passed to me at that time. Another empowerment one I received from a Mongolian Burat shaman enabled me to work with a pair of traditional wooden shaman horse staffs, known as horbo. This was mostly instructional about how to work with them, about their master spirit, and about how to look after them in a physical, ritual manner. The empowerment ended with me being given instructions about a ceremony that I had to do by myself, after which I had to report back to the shaman and share what had happened during the ceremony. Working with the horbo can be a wild ride. The horses are alive with their own spirits, and there is also a master spirit of the tradition who opens the roads for the horses to travel down. The shaman can work with them standing up or sitting down. I generally work with them sitting down, and the horses form a team which pulls a carriage a troika with the seat that I sit upon serving as the bench of the wooden troika itself. The horses champ at the bit and are always lively and I sit on the troika above the spirit road and at my signal we set off. On the back of the troika one of my spirit helpers will sit as they come with me for the carriage ride. It is possible, however, to have other shamans or shamanic practitioners sitting behind too who all come on the journey as members of the shaman's party in order to help the work. When working with the horbo, the ride can be very visual and very physical, as I often feel I am truly on a troika getting bumped about all over the place, and it can be a little exhausting physically sometimes. I can also work with the horses individually, riding them, 
as they are said to take the shaman to places the shaman is not able to normally go to, and they will always bring the shaman safely home again. Even if the shaman is lost and does not know the way back, the horses will. They also fight as war horses, kicking and biting hostile spirits. They come in pairs, sometimes made of wood and sometimes made of iron. Mine are wooden ones and were made for me by a shaman blacksmith near Lake Baikal in Siberia. They also have to be kept in a special way and looked after like they were physical living horses. They need to be watered each day, although luckily I don't have to muck them out. Many of the empowerments I have received into Nepalese traditions from the shaman Bola Banstola have sort of taken the form of self-empowerments. Bola sets up an altar and calls in the spirits, especially focusing on the spirit that the empowerment is for. Then the student goes to the altar in a prescribed manner, makes prescribed offerings to the spirits and makes personal prayers, asking the spirit to work with them. Then often the student picks up a small piece of paper with that spirit's mantra on, which is already on the altar, and that is the moment of transmission. After that, the actual practice is taught, and because of the empowerment, one is able to practice it with authority. This form of self-empowerment is how I give most of the transmissions I have authority to pass on to other people. The Tibetan Buddhist empowerments I have been given have been done to me and normally follow a pattern of events a little like this. The Lama will sing or recite Tibetan text which describes the practice and invokes the spirit being of the practice itself. Then the student will be given blessed water from a special sacred water pot called a bumpa. This water is often poured into the open hands of the student who places it on the top of their head, their throat and their heart. A little is often sipped too. This empowerment is called a vase empowerment. Then a ritual object, sometimes a small Gao shrine box containing sacred objects and relics, is touched to the student's forehead, throat and heart. And then, very often, the student will be instructed to gaze into an object, sometimes a bronze mirror, or a clear quartz crystal, while the Lama reads more text and recites mantras, which can be thought of as a spell of power. The gazing into the mirror or crystal is for the student to become an empty vessel, to sit in a state of emptiness so that they can receive the energy body of the empowerment. The gazing often ends when the Lama emits a forcefully said short mantra, often just one syllable long, like a yell. This explosive utterance of the mantra, which is called a seed syllable, is like a dart or arrow of mind-to-mind intent about the practice, from the Lama to the student. The dart lodges in the student in that instance, and transfers the energy of the empowerment. Not all Tibetan empowerments are like this, however. Some lamas give them in a very informal and simple way, whereas some like to be quite ritualistic, one might say almost theatrical. It also depends on the nature of the empowerment too. Some empowerments call for more formality and others less. 
An empowerment is always passed on by someone with the authority to give it. If someone does not have the authority, they simply do not have the package of sacred energy needed and cannot pass the empowerment on. This is the essence of a lineage, as the teacher passing on the empowerment will have received it from their teacher, who will have received it in turn from their teacher, and so on, back down the line. It needs saying too that just because an empowerment is given to someone, that does not mean that they can give that empowerment on to somebody else. Normally, we have to receive permission to give an empowerment from our teacher, and we only get that empowerment when we have mastered the practice and know it well, so we can teach it and give the empowerment with authority and direct knowledge. I hold many traditional empowerments that I will never be able to pass on to other people, practices I cannot share or teach. I also hold some that I do have permission to pass on to others, so they can learn the practices too, and these I give to students when I think it is appropriate and that the empowerment will be a benefit to their overall practice. In a shamanic lineage, the original empowerment would be said to have come from the spirits and then passed on from teacher to student down the line. In Tibetan Buddhism, the empowerment will go right back to the teacher who established the lineage and very often that will either be the Tantric Buddha Padmasambhava or the original Buddha, Sakyamuni Buddha, who first established Buddhism in India. Many traditions only give empowerments once a person has been formally admitted into the lineage. In a shamanic lineage, generally one is given a formal empowerment into the lineage, and then other teachings are given gradually as the student becomes ready for them. Some shamanic lineages have levels of empowerment and the student shaman will pass through these every few years, progressing to the next level when they have mastered all of the practices required to be mastered in the previous one. With all empowerments, there are generally some rules and traditions which have to be followed. These are in the form of vows which one should not break and can be about one's personal conduct, and about the regular performances of the practices associated with the empowerment. With some lineages, there will be specific protector spirits associated with the lineages too. These are responsible for protecting both the practitioners and the lineage itself. In the tradition of the sacred pipe, there is not a named protector spirit that I'm aware of, but it is taught and well known that if a pipe carrier does not follow the rules and therefore disrespects the sacred pipe and the traditions, bad things will happen to them. The story of white buffalo calf woman, the spirit who brought the sacred pipe to the people, is often cited. In the story, she met two hunters. One respected her and knew she was sacred, and the other didn't. The one who didn't was reduced to a pile of bones by a cloud of mist descending upon him. Interestingly, in 1898, this was said to have happened to five policemen who stole the sacred pipe that White Buffalo Calf Woman brought to the people. Witnesses saw mist come down over one of the policemen, who then died and this was repeated four more times until all of the five were dead.
In Himalayan Buddhism and shamanism, there are specifically known lineage protectors who are invoked and given offerings. In the Buddhist Nyingma, ancient school tradition that I took my own Buddhist refuge with, there are three main protector spirits, Ekijati, Doji Legpa and Rahula. All three of these spirits can be called upon by practitioners to help protect them and to remove obstacles from their spiritual path. But ultimately, these protectors are there to protect the lineage, not the individual. This means that if someone within the lineage does something that is against the lineage, the protectors will not protect that individual, but instead will destroy them for breaking their vows. Rahula is especially known for this, and he carries a noose with which to choke oath breakers to death. So that was the bit about initiations and I'm going to do a third part here or a third extract uh, which is uh, um, autobiographical. I've included little bits about my kind of path and my history and how I kind of came to do what I do and uh, this is a little bit uh, about when I was a teenager and um, it's connected to getting a sacred stone and working with it. And then when I was an adult uh, doing a sweat lodge and another sacred stone turning up. So I hope you enjoy this bit too. My own period of shaman sickness started soon after I returned to the greyness of England from the richly coloured wide landscapes of Australia. I felt as if I was a fish out of water washed ashore in a hard place of concrete and brick. Paradoxically, however, I sensed the spirit of things around me a great deal. A year in Australia and sailing all round the world had opened me up to the vastness and the mystery of life, and I felt an ever-growing and deepening yearning within me for something other than this mundane physical existence. Sometimes it felt to me there was only a thin paper wall between me and the spirit world. I knew the spirit world was there, but I could not pierce the wall, could not find a door, even though, like jumping mouse, I could hear the roar of the sacred river from behind the wall. This sense of the spirit world being so close and yet so far away both drove me mad with frustration and at the same time entranced me because of the beauty of the yearning that I felt. Everything around me seemed to be alive and to be shimmering. It seemed self-evident that everything was vital, that trees were glowing balls of energy, and the sun and the clouds in the sky were so much more than merely physical things. I raided the local library and read all I could about esoteric matters often books with a historical or archaeological slant. I became obsessed with ancient Egypt and learned all I could about its history, mythology and religion. However, this was in the mid-1970s in a small provincial English town, long before the internet and long before New Age bookshops, so there were very few resources I could tap into beyond academic, mythological and archaeological ones. Gradually, more and more, I found the world outside too large and imposing to be in, and so, for long periods of time, I would remain in my house. I think the longest period I remained inside was for around six weeks, 
during which time I did not feel capable of leaving the house at all, even to go into the garden, and rarely left my bedroom. During this time, I read, wrote, listened to music and painted. I also started to sense, but not see, spirits around me more and more. I felt as if I was being talked to, but not verbally. It was on a sort of telepathic level. I suddenly seemed to know things. With this knowing, I was instructed to do small rituals that I practiced every day. One of the instructions that came was to build an altar of sorts, and that led me to start to make small ritual objects. As the time went on, I became more and more dysfunctional and depressed. I knew something profound was happening to me, but I had no cultural point of reference or even words to describe it. Nothing I read or discovered, nothing I heard from others, gave me a clue. I had never heard of shamans, yet alone shaman sickness, and the only thing I knew about the spirits, really, was a few ghost stories and one or two autobiographies from clairvoyants and spirit mediums. These sorts of books had been on my reading list from when I was quite little. I remember when I was about 12 years old, my mother worked in a care home and one of the patients there was dying. I remember sitting for hours outside the door to the dying woman's room, waiting to discover if I could see her spirit leave her body. I asked my mother to let me in the room so I could watch better, but of course she said no. The spirits continued to talk to me and inform me about sacred things, and although I struggled to clearly hear or understand them, I did my best to listen and understand and follow what I perceived their instructions to be. They mostly taught me about ways I could help myself feel better, how I could make and empower small amulets that I wore for personal protection, and how I could work with a ritual knife, using a small knife I had stolen from my school in Australia and brought back with me to England for a daily blessing and protection ceremony. It was decades later that I realised these knife teachings were in fact extremely similar to Himalayan practices with a Purva, the ritual Tibetan dagger. As a teenager, I didn't have a Purva and didn't know about them at all, so I just knew I had to use my knife. I still perform something quite similar to that original knife practice, only now with a proper Purva, every day as part of my morning practice, now approaching five decades later. It was at this time that I was introduced to a small stone, one which came to me in a sacred manner and which is still a very important sacred item for me today. It has had literally the central position on my altar across all those long years. The stone came to me as I was walking across a beach on a summer's day. It sent out a flash of bright light to me quite clearly. My logical self still tells me it was sunlight reflecting from its wet surface. But deep down, I know it wasn't, because I remember such a clear knowing at the time that the stone had to come with me at any cost, that I had to pick it up and take it with me, because it was going to be important to me. It's not a big stone, or even very special looking, except in a rough kind of symmetrical way. What did seem important to me, however, as I examined it when I picked it up, was an eye-shaped inclusion of crystal within it. I knew that through this eye, the stone could observe the world and me. 
but Stone, close to 50 years later, is now dressed in silk brocade and has many beads, bells and other objects tied to it, including a tiger claw and a small bronze antique shaman's mirror from Mongolia. It has been with me in literally thousands of teaching events and ceremonies over the years, and I work with it as a stone friend very often. It has been my companion and my helper, giving me hope and encouragement when I was younger, and I have asked it to help with healings, blessings and empowerments many times now that I'm older. When I worked with Ed Magar Eagleman, a Native American Oglala teacher many years ago, he introduced to me the concept of the Wotai stone. Wotai are sacred medicine stones that come to people in unusual ways. They are also said to often visibly flash with bright light when they seek to draw a person's attention, and they often have unusual physical properties such as faces, eyes or other images within the stone. Wotai are considered to be stone friends who come to someone in a sacred manner and protect them. Many notable Native Americans of the past, such as Crazy Horse, who had a black stone, carry Wotai, especially when they went into battle. Ed Magar served in the Vietnam War and always had his with him when he went into battle too. Wotai are not stones one actively seeks for, Instead, they find us if they wish to. And if they do, it's a blessing. I have two. My main one, the one I found on the beach that time, and another which came to me mysteriously at a sweat lodge ceremony. When I learnt Native American medicine traditions, I learnt to pour for lodge, run sweat lodge ceremonies from several of my teachers. And there was a time when I used to run them quite often together with my partner. One day, we were asked to go and run a lodge at a farm in mid-Wales, and because we were asked in the proper way, we happily agreed because that is how the medicine works. When we got to the farm, we saw the site that we were expected to use was not very suitable. It was bare mud and covered with sheep droppings, and nothing had been done to prepare it. We thought long and hard about this bit of land, and asked if any other land was available for us to use, but were told nothing was. So, after praying and talking to the spirits for quite a long time, and after much heated debate between us, we made offerings to the land, cleared it of the sheep droppings, and began bending the willow branches needed to make the framework of the lodge. We were helped by the young daughter of the farmer, who was the only member of the family to help us, and she worked like a Trojan, cheerfully and diligently. After a long day of preparation, we had the lodge ready, and as the day wore on and evening approached, gradually people from the area who had been invited slowly began to arrive. At dusk, we entered the lodge, and together poured and conducted the ceremony for all the people who had gathered, only coming back out of the lodge into the Welsh mountain darkness later that evening at the end of the ceremony. The farmer who had invited us fed us and gave us overnight accommodation of a sort, a bare room with a broken sofa, with a couple of old and rather dirty blankets and a sheepskin to cover ourselves with. We felt that both ourselves and the ceremony that we had brought there had been rather ill-used and dishonoured, 
But we had come there in a sacred manner for a sacred ceremony, and so did our best with what we had, sleeping very badly and uncomfortably. Then the next morning we rose fairly early and had some breakfast, and then went back to the lodge site to collect some of the sacred things we had left there overnight. When we got there, we found in the middle of the earth altar that lay just outside of the low doorway to the lodge, a beautiful stone which had not been there the night before. The stone was the shape of an egg cut in half, but was smaller than a chicken's egg. It was completely black where the egg's white part should be, and red where the egg's yolk would be, a black and red boiled egg cut in half. The stone was so striking and its origin so mysterious, I felt strongly it wished to come with us. I checked with my partner, and she didn't feel it was for her, so the stone came with me and is now in a bundle attached to a special healing drum I use for one specific healing ceremony. We left the farm and shook the dust from our heels as quickly as we could that morning, thankful to be leaving it. But I was very grateful for the stone which came home with me. So, three extracts from my book, Walking with the Tiger, and you can get the book as an e-book or a paperback uh, from Amazon. And um, yeah, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. I'll do my normal shout outs. Um, Sacred Hoop magazine, sacredhoop.org forward slash offer dot html. My email, nick at sacredhoop.org. The Three Worlds website, threeworlds.co.uk. My Patreon account for supporting the podcast and the other shamanic work I do under my name, Nicholas Breezewood. And the Facebook, Three World Shamanism Facebook group. Um, That'll do, I think. I've kept you long enough. This is a longer podcast than normal, so... I hope you've enjoyed it. Come back next time for, again, something entirely different. I'll see you next week or tomorrow or whenever it is you're going to listen to the next podcast. Bye bye, folks. (laughs) 